I told him I don't need it for this one because this one we just keep on going until the time's up. And then we stop. But the only question I have is, yeah, do I get an hour or do I only get until quarter to 12? Okay. Where's my book? My notes, if I need them. Where were we when we were so rudely interrupted by a knight? Number, take five, lesson one. Number four on page whatever it is. More importantly, perhaps, than uh, music notation, which is interesting, and I hope that you will like uh, to, to learn a little bit about music notation. Of course, those of you that know how to read music notation already don't have to worry. It's going to be a little boring. That's why it's only take five and not take 50. So, but I hope that those of you that have heretofore said, I can't read music and never will. Uh, we'll be able to say, so far, <laughs> and that you will actually uh, pick up something that will encourage you to, to make further progress. Oh, someone reminded me. Who was it that reminded me about the oboe? Did you? No, who was it? Somebody reminded me about the oboe that I forgot to tell you last night. The orchestras tune up on the oboe. Not the violin. The violin is the, is the uh, what do they call it, the first violin is called? Concertmaster. Concert they, they do that just before they play. The concertmaster plays an A. But the concertmaster gets his or her A from the oboe because God invented the oboe or allowed us to discover it and God says, there's your A. <laughs> Isn't that neat? So that's another reason for uh, why you, somebody ought to learn how to play the oboe. How does music fit into a Christian world and life view? After all, this is a Christian camp, so we just can't say nothing about the Bible or about the Christian faith. We're, get, we're getting there, uh, but we're looking at the whole picture and we're Reformed Christians and we believe we have, there's life outside of church on Sunday. And we're talking about all of our life and, and all of our music. In fact, I even learned from, the, what's the fellow's name that does the uh, overheads? What's his name? Sanchez. John. John. John told me. Where are you, John? There's John back there. John, John has a Beatle CD. And, well, I'd love to play Let It Be uh, from there, but I, I don't think, we, we can't work on everything. you probably got all sorts of CDs that you'd love me to play, but this is the joy of being the, the guy that gives the music conference. I get to pick the music. <laughs> but I would love to, John, I would love to put, to put on one of your, your uh, Beatles CDs, because uh, I, too, uh, like the Beatles, although I wasn't supposed to, I think, when I was a kid. They were kind of bad or something, I think. But uh, uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon wrote some really incredible songs. Not always the words, but certainly the music. All right. How does music fit into a Christian world and life view? Music is not neutral. That's for sure. As all things, music must be judged according to how it stacks up against three criteria. All things that we do must stack up to the three criteria that are brought forth before us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
And then he goes on to say that you may be able to know what is that will of God, that good, acceptable, and perfect. So there we have three predicate adjectives. And just because there are only three words, don't be fooled into thinking, well, it can't be that important. It's just one little verse and just three little predicate adjectives. This is a biggie verse, folks. This verse is really telling us that if you want to present your bodies wholly acceptable to God, if you want to serve the Lord, if you want to live like a Christian, if you want to live obedient faith, you're going to have to make all kinds of decisions. Every day is going to be made up with choices. And those choices will also include music choices. And so as everything, when it comes to music, the way you decide what's, what God wants you to do or write or listen to is governed by Romans 12, 1 and 2. Namely, is it good? Is it acceptable? Is it perfect? Now you say, okay, Tyson, that's fine. Now what do those words mean? I'm glad you asked. Good is the easiest one. What does it mean that something is good? What? Not bad. Not bad. And how do we know what bad stuff is? No, don't do that to me. Not to... Yeah, God, God says what's good and what's bad. And the, there is such a thing as a moral law. Now, again, we don't have to get into the thing that's before your presbytery because we all agree on that at least. That's for sure. There is a moral law. God has told us that there are things that are bad and there are things that are good. So if there's anything in the music that is contrary to the moral law of God, it's not good. Whether it's, well, anything, anything to do with the music. We'll get into the question a little bit later. Is I mean, can the key of F sharp minor be bad? <laughs> Probably not. So it's not so much that. But it'll have a lot to do with the words, with the lyrics. A lot to do with the lyrics. But it, it could also spill into the, the actual music itself because perhaps the music is so associated with something bad that you can't get it apart. And so it may not be, if it may not be good. This may get closer to the second word, acceptable. But in any case, whether it's acceptable or not, we know what good means. Anything that is out of God's law, God's moral commandment, is, is something that we shouldn't do. For instance, uh, let's take the question of playing the piano. Is that good? Is there anybody that wants to suggest that the playing of a piano is contrary to the moral law of God? Joe? So, <laughs> No, 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 no. That, that's, that's acceptable. But just the playing of the piano. Nobody wants to allege that. It, it, okay, so it, it gets a hundred. It gets an A on, on, rule, on the, uh, checklist one. It's good. Acceptable. This, this, is, a, this is a Greek word that, that basically, you know, where Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are, I think one, some translation put it, expedient or acceptable. It's the same Greek word, and it, I think we understand what the word means, and that's with Joe's... Tell us about the, the middle of the night, Joe. Yeah, 
There's nothing wrong with playing the piano, but 3 a.m. is a no-no. It's not acceptable. You shouldn't do it. Okay? But there's another word, and this is the hardest one of all. Perfect. That's probably not a very helpful translation. Teleos is the Greek word, and it means going to completion, getting all there, full. The word doesn't really have anything to do with moral perfection, right or wrong. It has to do with fullness. You know, and then, of course, something that's not all there, you know, like, you, you know, you have an assignment to write 100 pages and you only write 75, you know, it's not teleos. It's, it's not all there. And so, in that sense, it's bad. But um, that's what the word means. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Really, I wish that the Bible translations had used a different word. They said good and acceptable and all there, or complete, something like that would be helpful. But they didn't. They just said perfect. And so we see the word perfect and we say, everything you do, you know, if, if something that you do isn't perfect, don't do it. And the only trouble with that view is that we can't do anything. So let's apply this now to playing music. Okay. I'm playing the piano. Is that good? Yeah, that's good. Good to play the piano. Uh, it's uh, 11 o'clock and uh, we're having a music seminar. So that's acceptable, isn't it? There's no problem it's not the wrong time or place but however actually I wanted you to see how I could play arpeggios so well aren't I good <laughs> but it sure jolly well ain't perfect because everything that we are to do we are to do what does second 1 Corinthians 10.31 say, Whatsoever you do, if you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, not for the glory of Tom Tyson. And if you're making music, writing music, listening to music, doing music, criticizing music, anything to do with music, if whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing it to make you look good for your glory. Yes, I'll be glad to play the piano in church. It will give me a chance to show everybody how well I can do it. And I'll put a few flourishes in between the verses, too, so they won't miss it. Gong. That is not right. That is not the will of God. It is not the will of God that you do that. Okay. Music maker. Johann Sebastian Bach. Please don't say batch and don't say Bach. It's something in between. Are there any real Germans here? Say Bach. There you go. Beautiful. He's one of the greatest composers in history. His professional competence is unrivaled. He probably was the greatest technical and musical musician ever. He also had a strong Christian faith and even an orthodox theology. He determined to integrate music into the teaching and preaching ministry of the church to the glory of God. He had talent, yes, but a lifelong discipline of intensive study and hard work went into it. 
I'm going to need a pianist up here, so could one of the gals come up? Because in a minute we're going to sing a song. Uh, it's uh, number 207 in the blue hymnal. Thank you. I shouldn't be calling you the pianist. Your name is? Stacy. Thank you, Stacy. It'll be 207 in the blue hymnal. Johann Sebastian Bach was born March 21st, 1685. The Reformation was already almost two centuries old before Bach was 30 years old. He came from a musical family for seven generations. He learned to play instruments and to sing at an early age. At 18, he was a professional organist. He was a prolific composer of easy and difficult music, much of it written for his own children. Bach could write and did write a whole cantata and present it to the church choir on Thursday for use in the worship service the following Sunday, including solos and duets. The people of those days had, you know, they outshone us super in their ability. We're going to sing two, uh, 209 in uh, the Blue Trinity Hymnal, verses 1 and 2, Christ lag in Todesbanden, otherwise known as Christ lay in the bonds of death. 207, what did I say? Wh whatever, 207 is the... And uh, let's, um, let's stand when we sing the first two verses. This is um, a chorale, and uh, then Bach took this chorale and made a cantata out of it. You ought to get it, Chris Log and Todesbanden. It is gorgeous. There is a three against two thing where they sing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, da 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 da. You know that where you do three and two on your knee? Bach has got that in that whole cantata, and it is gorgeous. But here's the chorale, let's sing it. Let's hear all four verses, or all four parts, please. Watch me, we're going to be a choir. Here we go. Christ Jesus lay in death strong past for our offenses given. But now at God's right hand he stands and brings us life from heaven. Therefore let us joyful be and sing to God right thankfully loud songs of hallelujah, hallelujah. Now watch the retard on the last phrase on the second verse. Now, and also, please uh, don't have a break between Holy Scripture plainly saith that death is swallowed up by death. No break between saith and that even though there's a fermata over the note. Carry it over. Here we go. It was a strange and dreadful strife when my man contended. The victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended. Holy Scripture plainly said, Ever. 
That's Bach. Church music, according to Bach, was neither to adorn or entertain, but to communicate Christian truth. He wrote, quote, All music should have no other aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no true music. Unquote. From boyhood onward, whether he was writing a dance tune, a concerto, or a sacred cantata, Bach headed each composition with Jesu Yuva, Jesus help me. And he ended it with Solo Dei Gratia, to God alone be thanks. Now we notice also then that music is part of the created order. That's why we have Jubal being the father of those who make the harp and who play the flute already in Genesis chapter 4. The very dawn of creation. Now it wasn't exactly an organ that Jubal made, but he had some kind of uh, musical instrument uh, that uh, could have been the forefather uh, of the organ and likewise the flute. Uh, we, we have much uh, music in nature. We've already talked about that. And then there is the ability of humans to make music. And I already mentioned to that that we're making music whenever we speak. It's just sort of staccato music. But music is part of our life and we can't get it out, nor should we. Therefore, we're not surprised when music has an important application and place in public worship. And uh, the purpose of hymns and psalms in public worship is not entertainment, it's not uh, to make something interesting so that people will come to church to listen to boring sermons. The purpose of church music is for us to worship God using these faculties and abilities that he has given us. Because in music, somehow there is engaged our emotions in a way that they are not so engaged when we are in prose uh, speech. Music does have relevance both to the regenerate and the unregenerate man. That is not to say, however, that there is a clear line drawn by which we designate a certain song or a sound even or a composition or perhaps even a whole performance as regenerate or unregenerate. You just can't do that so easily as all that. Everything depends on how the various factors come together. The mechanics the mood, yes, the lyrics, for sure the lyrics, but even the dynamics. I mean, I have never been to a rock concert, probably, well, probably for some other reasons, but one of the big reasons would be that I simply could not tolerate the decibel level. It just would be uh, unpleasant, painful for me, so I don't go. The implication of what is done. That'll have something to do with the way in which the people are dressed, the way they carry themselves, just the whole, what is implied by this performance. Or even if it's not a concert, just what are the implications of a song even that someone's singing uh, that is not in concert form. And then, of course, the motivation. Why are they doing it? Why is this happening? In the end, we may need to say that certain music is questionably glorifying to God. But we need to say that humbly and with respect to other people's opinions. Let me interject here that I used to wonder whether country music 
could possibly ever at all and anywhere be glorifying to God. Because it's always about a guy who's committing adultery and wonders why his wife's mad. <laughs> or why a girl lost a guy. Or, you know, it's always about something going wrong in love. And it just got so boring. I wondered, how come nobody ever does anything right out in the country? Until Christmas of 1989, I think it was, when my wife gave me the present of us, well, they didn't have CDs then, it was a cassette of the Forrester sisters singing, I'd Choose You Again. <laughs> and she, she didn't tell me that that's what it was, she just said, sweetheart, sit down. <laughs> and she put it on, and she played it, and she smiled at me while the Forrester girls were singing, I'd Choose You Again. Since then, I'm a total fan of country, <laughs> country music. It really glorifies God. <laughs> but try to be a little hesitant in your, in your positions and in your opinions about music. Judgments about music don't belong, I don't think, in the category of the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. It's not a, a, these are not things most surely believed. Okay, now I want to, uh, it's time for a listen. And I'm going to play for you Lacrimosa from Mozart's Requiem. Let me read the words. Lacrimosa dies ila, qua resurgit ex favila, judicandus homo reus, huic ergo parce Deus, pia Jesu domine, dona eis requiem. Ah, that day of tears and mourning, from the dust of earth returning, man for judgment must prepare him. Spare, O God, in mercy, spare him. Lord, all-pitying, Jesu blessed, grant them thine eternal rest. Now, I know you're going to have a little trouble with this because it's a prayer for the dead. However, there are a lot of dead people walking around in this world, and I don't have any problem with the requiem because I know what I mean when I pray for my unregenerate dead neighbors, that they be brought to life in Christ. So um, when you listen to this, try not to be too offended theologically. Uh, it's not a prayer, at least for us, it's not a prayer for the dead, for the physical dead, but it is a prayer for our unbelieving neighbors, that God uh, will bring us to them. Because those unbelieving neighbors, as, as uh, the Lacrimosa says, um, Qua resurgit ex favila, judicandus homo reus. From the dust of earth returning they shall someday, that they for judgment must be prepared. They're going to stand before the judge of all the earth. And if they don't have Jesus, they're going to be in bad doo-doo. So, um, this piece, Lacrimosa, presents a good example of music that fits the text. He ends on a major triad, What happened? You know, you know the major triad. The thing is off. Did you turn it off? And there's an on button here. Is this it? That was on. Well, somewhere along the line here, we're going to find out what happened to our piano.
it's a mystery. It's, it's a miracle. The lacrimosa. What did you do? I heard the ball. The lacrimosa ends on a major triad. Remember, I told you last night that he he ends the whole requiem. fifth, which doesn't have either or this. It's just... However, on the lacrimosa, he decides to end it on the major third. Because he's saying, yes, we're going to face judgment, but if we're in the Savior, if we have Jesus as our merciful Savior, we're going to be okay. Here we must remark that we are uh, conf- confronted in this music with two somewhat conflicting considerations. We have to deal with a question of prayers for the dead. We've already talked about that. But number two, this is arguably one of the most beautiful choral pieces ever written. Sort that out.
Now that is choral writing, folks. The highest order. Get it if you don't have it. How many of you have Mozart's Requiem? A few of you. Good. You all ought to raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Music and the cultural mandate. Genesis 1.28. God tells Adam and Eve, subdue the earth. Now, that's where I put music, right there. In other words, get busy and find out everything that I have created and find out what you can do with it. Catch the fish and eat them. Find out about the diatonic scale and love it. <laughs> and make music. The secular humanist does not think of all life as religious, but the Reformed Christian does. Now, not everyone has equal gifting in any area of life. Calculus, for one thing, is a total mystery to me. I am so thankful to the Lord that I did not have to homeschool my three engineering sons. One's an aeronautical engineer, the other's a mechanical engineer, and the third one's an electrical engineer. And I don't know for diddly what calculus means, except that it has something to do about like two things going on at once. And you can sort of graft it somehow. And that's, my, that's the end of my understanding of calculus. Now, does that make me a total dodo? Yes. <laughs> but I've got other things that I do understand, so I concentrate on them. And I'm not saying that everybody has to grasp everything about music and that when we finish with all these take fives, you'll have it all completely understood and you'll be ready to write a concerto. But I, I think that you ought to try, I probably ought to try to learn calculus. I just haven't had time yet. What a bum excuse. <laughs> Criticize these remarks. Now, we need the, um, the mic for this because I'm going I'm to have to have some people tell uh, what do you think of this remark? I can like music without ever having heard a Mozart sonata. Anybody want to re react to that one? Come on. I can like music without ever having heard a Mozart sonata. Did you hear him? There are other musicians besides Mozart, so I could have heard Beethoven or Bach or any of our voices saying something that brings glory to God. And okay, let me change it slightly. I can like music without ever having heard a classical sonata. Well, then there's, are there other music besides classical? Yep, there is. And do you, in other words, you're saying the person can. I'm saying a person can. Obviously, they would be more complete if they heard <laughs> more music. And, uh, Thank you for that word for classical music. Sorry. I was hold, hold, hold it closer there. Sorry. Yeah, I don't hold the view, do you, that uh, the Christian parents ought to expose their children to classical music. I, I don't hold that view. I don't know what I would base that on. I think it's a good idea. It's affordable. It's available. And uh, if you can go, great. If you only play the recorded version, great. Um, I played some for my son. Yeah. Don't knock it if you ain't never heard it. <laughs> okay. All right, thank you. How about this one? Culture is something which people with wealth, leisure, and interest dabble in.
Do you want to talk to that one? Sure, I'll talk to that one. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's not what's required. I mean, you don't need money to enjoy culture or even music. You don't need to be wealthy to appreciate music. Right. How about, do you have to have time? Are there ways that you can squeeze it in? Oh, absolutely. Pe like what? People normally do, you know, listening to it in your car while you're driving around, if you have a car. If, right. if you don't have a car, then, you know, uh, you probably have a lot of time in your hands now. <laughs> in fact, is there anybody who doesn't dabble in culture somewhere? Ah, good point. The question is what culture, right? What culture, right. Okay, thank you. Take five, lesson two. Okay. Now you remember we learned from last night that this is the treble clef. Here's middle C. Now there's nothing in the... See it says nothing here. No sharps or flats here. That means you're in the key of C. If it's joyful, remember that. If joyful. Because later on you're going to learn that you can have nothing here, no sharps or flats here, and you think you're in the key of C, but you're not in the key of C at all. But that's for a later take five. But this one, if it sounds joyful, then you're in the key of C. So, if you're in the key of C, then the C note is Do. Do, a deer, a female deer. Do is the Do note. And all you get all the white notes all the way up from Do to Do. Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, Do. By the way, it's not So, it's Sol. Even though So, a needle pulling thread, is a bit of a play on words. It's Sol. Now, you'll notice that there's a, a whole step between the first three notes of the diatonic scale. Just take my word for it. That's the name of this scale, the diatonic scale. There's a, there's a one, whole, one whole space between Do and Re. Listen to it. Do, Re. Here's a half note. That's not Re. It's... And then between that one and the next one, there's another whole step. Not this one. This one. So it's Do, Re, Mi. But the Fa is a half step. Now, that's obvious because when you look at your piano, you'll find that there isn't any black note between the E and the Fa. The black note, you see, is a half step higher. Here's a black note coming. Here's a white note. Here's a black note. Here's a white note. But now the next one is a white note, but it's only a half step. Listen. Here's a whole step. But it's... So it's... Do, re, mi, fa, half step. Then there's another whole step between fa and sol. Then you start a new set of four. You see these four notes? Whole step, whole step, half step. Then you get a whole step in between that one and the next set of four notes, and it's sol, la, 
T. Now you get a half step in here. T. Do. Now later on we're going to hear Marilyn Horn sing a song from Samson and Delilah by Saint-Saëns where she sings the T. And you know she's headed for Do. But she stands on that T so long that she sharps it a little bit because she can't wait to get to Do. And you'll hear that later on when Marilyn Horn sings. That's her way of sort of bending the tone a little bit to make it more interesting. Now, here's another set. Uh-oh. There's one of those little squiggly jobs there. It's called a sharp. You find that in the key signature here. Remember, when there's nothing here, you're in the key of C. When you find that F sharp there, aha, you're in the key of G. Here's C, D, E, F, G. So now G becomes the new Do, right? But in this new diatonic scale, you got the same, the same arrangement as you had here. It's just that it's a fifth, it starts out a fifth higher. Are you with me? Did I lose you? All right. The G now becomes the new Do. Not this old C, but the G. But it's now Do. So you sing Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, Ma. Now, to get the T, you're going to have to sharp the F. And that's why this F over here, remember, every good boy deserves fudge. F, fudge. You put that fudge in there, and now you know you're in the key of G. Not the key of C anymore, the key of G. If it's happy. If it's happy. So, we've learned from this tape five that... Uh, What's over here, right after the sign that tells you whether you're in the right hand or the left hand, that's called the key signature. And when there's an F there with a sharp on it, that F sharp signs its line or space from then on until you hear otherwise no kidding. The rest of the song, the song could be four hours and 17 minutes long, and if he hasn't or she hasn't told you anything else about this F sharp, that F sharp stays in there until the end of the song. He or she who's composing this music has to get rid of this F, this sharp if she wants it out of there later on. So this little dude here is telling us that that signal is a sharp which raises the note one half step. Got it? Are you with me or is this going too fast? With me? How many are with me? How many are totally lost? Ugh, sorry about that. I'll try to go a little slower. <laughs> Remember, the, those, those black dots, they just stand for a note on the piano. It's, a, it's like a, letters and words stand for sounds. That stands for this. <laughs> so our major scale is made up of two tetrachords, they're called. Four notes in a whole, whole half-step pattern with a whole step in between them. Do, re, mi, fa. 
one, two, three, four. Sola ti do, one, two, three, four. Whole, whole, half, whole in between, then whole, whole, half. Every major scale has that same pattern. I don't care if you're in F sharp or E flat or C or whatever key you're in, it has the same pattern. Thus, G major, the upper tetrachord of C, is the upper tetrachord of C major plus a new tetrachord. See, G begins the, do, here's the old C, Do, Re, Mi, Fa. It was Sol, La, Ti, Do, but the new G scale, instead of going Sol, La, Ti, Do, goes Do, Re, Mi, Fa. See? And then you add a new tetrachord on top of that to finish out the key of G. So that's why the F-sharp is needed to make the tetrachord conform to our pattern, whole, whole, half. For flat keys, you take the lower tetrachord of C major plus a, two tetrachord, a new tetrachord below, and the B-flat is needed to make the tetrachord conform to the pattern. So if you go down from C, you have to go B-flat down to F, because the F has to go that B flat. And so when you go down, you add flats and change your keys. When you go up, you add sharps and change your keys. And you'll see this diagram in further take fives. Okay, let's do it. Shepherd of Tender Youth, written by Clement of Alexandria. Now, last night we sang a hymn that's in the Bible. <laughs> and now that's really old. <laughs> But the, probably the earliest Christian hymn outside the scripture is this one, written by Clement of Alexandria in the year, or around the year 200 A.D. Very early, the post-apostolic church began to use hymns derived neither from the Psalms of David nor from the New Testament songs like Mary's Magnificat or Elizabeth's Song or whatever the Christians began to sing the praises of the risen and ascended Savior in words of their own composition, written in metrical form. Furthermore, this was the beginning of Christian hymnody. The church historian Eusebius writes, quote, By the first half of the third century, that's somewhere between 200 and 250 A.D., he says there existed a large number of sacred songs, Exclusive psalm singers, eat your heart out. A few of those songs only have been preserved. But the authorship of only one of them can be determined with any degree of certainty. This then, Shepherd of Tender Youth, is the oldest of all Christian hymns if we discount such remnants in the New Testament text itself, such as 1 Timothy 3.16, which we sang last night. Now turn in your, in your hymnals to number 117, your blue hymnal. It's the only one you got. I wish you had the red one, because the red one has a much better tune, but it's going to be real confusing. I can play that tune, because we even have a red hymnal here. Someone else can play it, too. But you won't have the music before you, so I guess we'll have to stick with this in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, in the PCA. Ron Matthews is the music director. Ron Matthews wrote the uh, new tune for... Um, this shepherd of tender youth, uh, uh, and he, along with about nine or ten other tunes in the Red Trinity Hymnal, all written by Ron Matthews. Now, um, the first line 
of the song in the original Greek, because that's how we have it preserved today, uh, reads, um, not shepherd of tender youth, but bridle of steeds untamed. I kid you not. (laughs) And the third line, guiding in truth and love through devious ways, Christ our triumphant King, we come thy name to sing. Now here, instead of hither our children bring, that third line uh, reads, hither thy children bring tributes of praise rather than to shout thy praise. Do you see what um, Clement was getting at in his hymn? What, what would he be talking about when he says bridle of steeds untamed? Probably not. Good guess, though, Mike. Who are the untamed steeds in the early Christian era? Huh? Unbelievers. Yeah, the pagans. They're untamed steeds. They're, they're, they're heading for hell. And uh, he writes a hymn that says, Bridle of steeds untamed, guiding in love and truth through devious ways. Christ, our triumphant King, we come thy name to sing, hither thy children bring, the the untamed steeds. Hither thy children bring, tributes of praise. When God saves these, uh, these pagans, it will be tributes of praise for him. And then in the second line of verse 5, So now until we die, sound we thy praises high and joyful sing. Here we get infants and the glad throng. The original Greek reads, Let all the holy throng. So with those, just those changes, what we're going to do is we're going to restore the hymn to what Clement had in mind. Because although we're, we're learning um, how shall the young direct their way, and we're going to memorize it, and we've got plenty of good songs about children need to be catechized, which is what Michael was after, uh, we also need to not forget that we have evangelism to do. And there are some untamed steeds out there. And uh, this is a hymn from 200 A.D. where Clement has the church sing to God, God, will you please save some people that are heading for hell? That's what the hymn is about. And I don't know what in the world happened but somebody got a hold of this thing and they said, we want to make a, a covenantal song uh, from this about uh, training our covenant children. So, was it Henry Dexter? Is he the one that did it? Oh yeah, translated by Henry Dexter. But he didn't translate it. He changed, he changed it. Okay, where's our pianist? Um, while she's coming up, when we sing this hymn, let's restore the original words, Okay. Now, uh, forget about the, uh, the tune of Trinity Hymnal uh, 160 because that's the red Trinity Hymnal where the tune's written by Ron and, and we've got to forget about that because we don't have it. So we're going to have to uh, sing this diddly <laughs> tune of the blue Trinity It's not that bad, but the other one is just so much superior. If you have a red Trinity Hymnal at home, go check it out. What, did you, what was the number? The, the, the number here is 117. So I'm concluding by saying... This is not so much a children's hymn as one that was aimed to instruct and edify the newly converted pagans who were still babes in Christ. The author Clement, whose name was actually Titus Flavius Clemens, was born in 170 A.D. As a youth, he entered the catechetical school, there you are, Michael, at Alexandria, Egypt. He was converted and he later became head of the institution. 
It was really, in a way, the first Christian school in Alexandria, Egypt. Clement taught Origen, who is called by some the greatest scholar in the ancient church. So uh, you may remain seated. Now, you're going to have to keep your wits about you. Oh, I, I know what I do. I have this on the overhead to remind you what you have to do. We have to correct this baby. So in uh, verse 1, line 1, we're going to sing Bridal of Seeds Untamed. In verse 1, line 3, instead of, we're going to sing Instead of what's there, Hither thy children bring tributes of praise. And verse 5, line 2, we're going to sing Let All the Holy Throng. Okay, would you, uh, are you familiar with this tune? Even this tune? Yeah, okay, so just give us a short introduction and off we go. Be careful because the first words are different. Here we go. Bridal of seeds untamed, guiding in love and truth through devious ways. Christ our triumphant King, we come thy name to sing. Hither thy children bring tributes of praise. Let's hear some harmony. Thou art our Holy Lord, the all-subduing Word, healer on high. Thou didst thyself obey that from